Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Mind, hosted by serial entrepreneur and author Mark Kramer. Tune into The Best Business Minds to listen to thought-provoking interviews with best-selling business book authors who are today's leading innovators, entrepreneurs, and industry experts from around the globe. Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Minds, where we interview business leaders and academics that write thought-provoking books. I'm Mark Kramer, a serial entrepreneur who consults with family businesses and entrepreneurs. Today, our guest is Marilyn Guest, author of The Extraordinary Power of Leader Humility, which I love this book, and everybody should read this. Marilyn, before we get started about your book, uh, can you give us a little bit about your background? Sure, Mark. Thank you for having me on the show. This is great. Uh, My background has been a blend of... uh, leadership experience in business and government, and most of my career has been spent in higher education, Uh, Chapel Hill, University of Washington in Seattle, and ultimately Associate Dean at Seattle U, where I was Executive Director of the Center for Leadership Formation. So lots of work with uh, mid to senior business executives. Well, why did you write this book? And this is your first book, am I correct? Yes, it is. Um, I had an opportunity to work with some really talented people. And one of the fun things about my work here in Seattle is uh, we are home to a lot of large brand global companies, whether it's Starbucks or Boeing or Costco or, um, you know, any number of others, uh, Nordstrom, REI, Alaska Airlines. And so I've just wondered why is it um, that we give birth to companies, Amazon, Microsoft, uh, and and I've paid a lot of attention over 25 years to how they are run, how they grow, where they make some missteps and how they get it right. Uh, One of the things that began to really pop for me in the companies that uh, were doing really well and I was hearing positive things about was a tone in leadership that seemed to be really different than kind of a traditional command and control model. And it's one where the senior leaders in particular uh, show a lot of uh, genuine respect, concern um, for the dignity of others. And I define dignity as a sense of self-worth. We all have that and we all need it. And so uh, when senior leaders create policies and practices that support the dignity of others, they get a very energized workforce and better results. So a lot of your book deals with humility and being humble. So what's your definition of that? Definition of humility is not meekness. It's not a weakness. It's simply a tendency to feel and display deep regard for other people's dignity. And as that uh, behavior to support the self-worth or dignity of other people grows, then uh, you, you really do get better results. But although we've seen many successful, well, many leaders rise to the top without being that, uh, I, I thought it was great that you got uh, Alan, um, is it Alan Malali? Malali? Yes. Yeah, former CEO of Ford and Boeing to write your forward. In your uh, books forward, he mentions the leader humility is the foundation for working together in a healthy and high performance way. Regardless of how people view this week, uh, past week in Afghanistan, Joe Biden, at least to me, exemplifies humility 
uh, described by him. But many people either embrace that style or think it shows weakness. Why would people think being humble is a weakness and embrace braggadocia? 70 million people voted for Donald Trump and who I don't think would describe himself as humble. So why do people view humility as being weak? I think there uh, there is some confusion with that term. Uh, sometimes people associate it with faith-based notions of humility, which is kind of a subservience to a higher power. And that certainly is one definition of it. But in the context of leading people, it's not a subservience, but at least a uh, regard for the fact that they matter, that their their sense of self-worth, their dignity matters. So it's not a weakness. It's actually a strength counterintuitively because leaders don't work by themselves. They have to get work done through other people. So, you know, you mentioned Biden and you mentioned Trump. In some ways, the election last year could be viewed as a referendum on this idea of humility versus braggadocio. And while 70 plus million people did vote for Trump, 7 million more voted for a more humble style of leadership. Uh, and, and arguably, many of those people were people who felt uh, ignored or um you know, that their dignity didn't matter to the prior president. So, I mean, I think we've got a lot going on in the culture right now about who matters and who doesn't. But Biden's stance, at least, has been, I'm going to try to work in a bipartisan way. I'm going to try to work with everybody. All voices uh, will be at least entertained, whereas Trump's stance was more, my way is the right way. I'm strong, follow me. So some people buy into that. Uh, but arguably not as many. Alan Malali uh, was one of the most successful and best CEOs who wasn't an entrepreneur. I would say in the last 50 years and before we got uh, started the show today, you were saying people were saying in the last 20, but I, I think in the last 50 years, arguably the best, maybe. What traits did he have that made him so successful? Well, he would be the first to say that he anchors his leadership in humility, first, love, and service. Uh, and he's very fond of those three words, humility, love, and service. He believes, and, he, you know, Alan is known as being uh, a very nice person, genuinely so, uh, with, a, with a spine of titanium. I've heard Marshall Goldsmith say that about Alan. So it's not like he's not strong not that he's not a pushover, but he has a set of uh, what he calls um, best practices or uh, practices that leaders should follow and everyone in the organization should follow. And they include people first, everyone is included, listen, uh, support and respect each other. Um, you know, we're going to focus on data. We're not going to focus on personalities. And what he brought to both Boeing and Ford in his working together management approach uh, was a, a style of really bringing people together and setting standards for how we are going to interact uh, that really created a healthy organization. And he believes that has to start with respecting the dignity of others. Yeah, and, and you would think that's common sense. Um, what are the six, uh, oh, you, what is your forgetting? Uh, description of your quote, unquote, traditional leaders, and how is that changing? 
Well, traditional leadership models have included more of a sense of command and control that uh, the leader knows best. The leader sets the direction and sort of dictates and everybody has to follow. Uh, very little tolerance for uh, different views in the organization. It's changing for a lot of reasons, Mark. One of those is that more people are educated, more work is based in knowledge and uh, intellectual activity. And so, and, and organizations are flatter. So many people who actually know what needs to be done are closest to the customer, close to the front line. Uh, and in turn, they wanna hear, uh, they wanna know that their views are going to be heard. So the command and control model actually uh, demotivates a lot of people and you end up getting a fair amount of turnover uh, in organizations where people have options. We still have some more traditionally structured organizations. We have many employees who may not have as much flexibility either because they, they don't have as much education. They're in jobs that uh, lock them in a little bit more. So they might have to cope with a different leadership style. But the real vulnerability is in areas where people do have more flexibility. Uh, they just don't want that style anymore. Yeah, I, I, and when you say flexibility, it means that they can move on to anywhere they right. want, especially in the age of um, being able to work online. If I don't like right. the uh, manager, I'll just switch companies and I can go to work for somebody in New York and still live in Seattle. Right, right. And the biggest the, the biggest reason for turnover is uh, being unhappy with the supervisor. And we've seen that all too often with people where they just say they're going to leave. And now boards are getting rid of CEOs that they don't feel um, measure up providing that kind of uh, leadership. What are the six keys uh, to demonstrate humility? Well, you know, I, I talk about how everyone looking at a leader has three questions in mind. You know, who are you? Where are we going? And do you see me? And a leader's behavior really addresses those questions in positive or less positive ways. So I indicate who I am by how arrogant or balanced my ego is. We talked about that a little bit earlier in, in looking at uh, presidents and leaders. Um, so if I'm super arrogant, some people may find that appealing, but many people will find it a turnoff. Most people, in fact, find it a turnoff. So my balanced ego has to include uh, you and um, me as well. Another one is integrity, robust integrity. Most people don't want to follow a leader who is crooked or who asks them to cut corners and do things uh, that are not so, um, you know, legal or appropriate. Uh, then, so those answer the who you are question. They're really about your ego and your character. Then the next one is where are we going? And so the behaviors that feed into that are the nature of the vision. Is it compelling? Meaning, does it serve a broader good or is it simply something that's going to advance your career? Or maybe it makes money for the company but it does so in a way that's, say, harmful to the environment or harmful to many other people. Uh, so the nature of the vision is something that many people care about. And we see this, Mark, especially with the younger generation, very, very concerned with social issues and wanting to work for places that are serving a larger good. 
uh, even for-profit places. Uh, and then tied to that is the strategy for getting where we're going ethical um, or is it unethical in some ways? And then the third question really, which is about, do you see me? Many employees feel that's the most important thing. Am I just a cog in the wheel to you? Or do you care about who I am as a person? And so the behaviors of leaders are, are we inclusive? And you, know, you hear inclusion a lot around the diversity, equity, and inclusion uh, discussions, and it certainly applies to that. But it's also more about who's the range of stakeholders that you have. So it's your customers, your employees, your vendors, you know, through the supply chain, it's the regulators, it's all of it. So when you're making decisions, are you including all of those people when your decision is likely to have an impact, particularly a negative impact? Are you inviting them to the table figuratively and listening to what their concerns are and making an effort to address as much of that as you can? And then the final piece is developmental focus. Do you care about people's longer term goals? And do you show that? So with employees, it might be helping them get assignments that will build skills for promotability. With customers, it might be making a referral to someone else in your organization or to appear in another organization uh, where they might pursue further business. So opportunities like that to develop and advance people's long-term interests, and not just your own immediate uh, need for their engagement, are things people look at to, to know, do you see me or am I just someone you're using? Yeah, I, I, I just read about a, a, a well-known entrepreneurial company that basically was trying to stop any of the employees from starting their own businesses. And Amazing. Thinking, yeah, I, and... I was like, okay, you could start your own business, but you don't want me to start. And, and these people were coming to the company saying, I've got this idea. I'd like to see you invest. And I would think that's the best thing for a company yeah. is, yes. to, uh, is to do that. I know that um, Cisco had turned down uh, the guy from Zoom, and he actually is the one that built the platform, the WebEx platform. He said, I got something better. And they said, we're not interested. Go off on your own. And I had John and Chambers on the show. And I said, how did it feel to give up? Like twenty billion dollars, right? <laughs> yeah. I, so, well, we didn't think we needed that product at that time, but I guess you know we should have um, thought about should've that. Listened, should have listened a little harder. Uh, yeah, and maybe at least given a little, you know, couple hours a week, a little bit of money to seed it and see what might come out of it. But I think it's always smart for uh, companies to put the employees first because that builds loyalty and that also creates ideas and so forth. So I think it's uh, smart. And again, leaders should be reading this book. How do you know if a leader is demonstrating false humility? People can sense false humility a mile away uh, because by definition, little, uh, humility is concerned for the uh, dignity of others. And so we pick up on that, not just through what a leader says, but what a leader does, and a lot of the nonverbals, you know, there are some studies going back into the early 70s that show that 93% of communication is nonverbal. It's tone of voice, it's body language. So if you are trying to fake humility, it's very, very hard. And that's why I define it as feeling and displaying a deep regard for others' dignity. 
Because if I tell you, you know, Mark, I, I really have your best interest at heart. I want you to do this. And, you know, you'll, you'll advance in the organization. We probably will look at promoting you in four months, six months. If I don't really believe that and I'm feeding you just a line, you may well pick up on that through um, the way my eyes shift as I say it, the way my voice ticks up or down a notch. I mean, there's just a lot of subtle cues. So it's very hard to fake it, I think, um, and most people will see through it. And if they don't see through it in the first conversation, they pick up very quickly as the behavior starts to stray from what you're promising. Yeah, and I think people have a good BS meter now yes, more so do. than ever, right? Right. Uh, what can a leader do to show they care about other people's dignity? Because I think that, you know, we've seen leaders, and we'll talk about this later, um, but there have been plenty of leaders, uh, famous leaders, successful leaders like Steve Jobs, they don't really care about people's dignity, but I'm guessing he would have to change too because of how technology has changed the equation the CEO is more like the concierge of the company, not the king anymore. So what do they do to show they care about the other people's dignity? Well, I think the six keys that we just talked about and that I, I write about in the book, those six key behaviors are what people are looking for when they want to know if they are seen, if the vision or the direction they're being asked to go is wholesome, and what kind of character you are. It's very hard to get um, motivated to work for someone who is a uh, bad character. I mean, yes, some people do if they have a particular issue and that person's out in front of it, but it, it can be demoralizing over time to work for people like that. You mentioned Steve Jobs, and yes, we have a history of some leaders who have uh, made it to the top, led companies in some cases very successfully, uh, for quite a while, and I kind of who don't have this style, and I kind of see them as falling in a couple of camps. Uh, one are the people who are the entrepreneurs of what I would call the bright, shiny new toy. So, Steve Jobs, uh, Bill Gates at the time he started Microsoft, Elon Musk now with you know both uh, SpaceX and also Tesla where yes, they don't have a humble leadership style, but many people who are working for them uh, are so excited about the technology and the company and what the company is doing that they will put up with that. What's interesting, of course, is that the board removed jobs. You know, he came back later a little bit more humble, but yeah. he, was, he was damaging the company. If you look uh, at Microsoft after Gates left, they wanted to change the culture. Uh, Balmer was viewed as being a bit better, but maybe a little too entrenched in the historical culture to make that change. And the company stagnated until Nadella, Satya Nadella, uh, took over and has really re-energized that in large part because he has a much more humble leadership style and included people and created a culture uh, where people were really feeling valued. So one bucket, I think, is the entrepreneur who's got the bright, shiny new toy who can get away with that style in building a company for a while. Um, the other bucket where I see CEOs who have a much more, say, brusque, um, hard style is uh, and, and get away with it are cases where the company has 
found that its products and services are almost commoditized. And the, the nature of their competitive environment has to be cost cutting. And so what sometimes happens is you'll get in a person who is going to brutally cut costs, lay people off, uh, can have that command and control style because it reduces the amount of questions people are going to ask. They're intimidated. Uh, and maybe it improves the bottom line through layoffs or divestment. Maybe the board is happy because suddenly the company is uh, showing larger amounts of profit in the short term. But if you look long term, it can be very devastating uh, to the company. And we have seen that with uh, certain leaders. If you look at what happened with you know, General Electric, for example, um, you know, that that was part of it. Yeah, no question about it. Um, what do you mean by leaders create the container for uh, work? Uh, work is done. What does that? What do you mean by that? So leaders, by definition, have to work through other people. They aren't able to do the work themselves. They have to rely on others to get the work done. And if you can create a healthy container, you know, a container is something that holds things. And what leaders are doing is creating a placeholder for the work to get done. And when that is a healthy environment, when the culture is healthy, when people feel valued, their dignity is, is uh, supported, then what you get is a much more engaged workforce. Uh, people will go to the mat to do what uh, needs to be done to make the organization succeed. They care about the leader. They care about peers. If the leader, on the other hand, has a really harsh command control style or is very arrogant, they might get compliance. Uh, people need jobs and a paycheck and they will do what they have to do while they're there, but they're not gonna give, you, give it their all. So what you end up with is partially engaged employers. They're like shell partners, not full partners. Uh, the Gallup organization does an annual survey globally and they break out our domestic uh, results. Um, and they have shown over the years, I think in the United States, the highest we've ever scored on employee engagement is about 36%. So it's usually 33 to 36%. And what this means, Mark, is that two thirds of the people showing up for work every day aren't fully present. They're phoning it in, they're doing what they have to do, but they are not committed to the leader, to the organization as a whole. So is there anything beyond the six points that you mentioned that leaders can do to reverse that number? Uh, those would be the main things. I think the standard set of uh, human resource policies that most organizations know about still matter. So you've got to be compensating people well. You've got to do a decent job with performance evaluation feedback. Those things don't go away. But with those, the variable that we haven't paid enough attention to is what the leader himself or herself is doing. Uh, is that leader really supporting the dignity of those other people or not? So the six keys that I talk about, those six sets of behaviors are easily learned uh, and taken to heart. And those make a big difference. Even if you reclaim 20% of that lost engagement, that's a huge upside benefit in terms of productivity. 
And the data just show you get far better results when people feel their dignity is supported. I think, isn't that why, you know, um, Steve Jobs, second time around, got somebody like Tim Cook to deal with the day-to-day and actually interact with the people? Because my understanding, and I taught at Wharton for 10 years, that a lot of my students said, you rarely interacted with him. The only time you really did see him were the new product people. And if you liked the product, he was praiseworthy. If he didn't, he'd throw the product at you and right. had this high. But in terms of the rank and file and everybody that they dealt with, they went and got themselves uh, somebody who was good at dealing with that. Because under Apple, I, I don't think Tim Cook has been particularly creative, but in terms of uh, the ship running well, I think he does that well. So is that what a lot of these leaders look for is to find that good number two? Well, if they're smart and they can recognize that they don't have that capability, uh, yes, they do. They get someone else uh, who can you know, be the main person to interact uh, as a number two person, be the main person to interact with the employees, but also create the policies and practices that are going to run the company. So, you know, another example would be Howard Bihar, who was president of Starbucks Coffee Company internationally and went when they had like 28 stores and, of course, retired when they had you know, uh, you know, 75, 78,000 stores. Uh, And he had a he had a plaque on his wall, he told me that said, you know, we are in the people business serving coffee. We're not in the coffee business serving people. And just creating that culture, that sense of service to our customers, helping us understand the the kind of soft structure to to Starbucks that that gave it its appeal and its growth uh, is something that you know he is credited with really building in that company. So I think if you get a person like that, it's wise if you yourself don't have that capability and let the person at the top perhaps focus on the numbers, focus on the the new product as you talk about with Steve Jobs, creative genius. Uh, but maybe not so much people person. And, right. and Tim Cook has taken the company to, to new heights, maybe without a drastically new technology, but he's found ways to really expand uh, what they already were doing well and energize the population to do more of it. Yeah, you never hear any complaints about his leadership style no. with people. And um, the gentleman who ran Google for a long time, um, Schmidt, I'm forgetting. Yeah, he had the same skill set. Yes. Really good at with people and getting the most out of people in the organization. And they felt they could trust him. Right. They feel they can trust him. Neither of them seeking the limelight. uh, And yet neither of them weak. Nobody would say Tim Cook is weak. He can be very, very strong. uh, But really clear that the people matter. Yeah. And I think that's the same at Facebook uh, with uh, Mark Zuckerberg's number two, uh, Cheryl. Cheryl Sandberg. Yes. Yeah. Uh, What skills does a leader need to develop and utilize to recruit and retain superior talent, especially ones who doesn't come natural to them? Because we see, especially in the technology field, uh, that skill set doesn't come natural to these folks, especially super bright uh, people who are good at developing drugs and medical devices or software programmers. So what is what are those skills they need to develop to recruit and retain superior talent and how they do it if they if it's not natural to them? 
I think it's so important for people to realize that uh, the smarts, the intellectual competence that uh, can build software or can build a new product, um, whether that's a medical device or whatever, is an important skill set. But if you're if you're looking to lead people, that's not the adequate skill set. It's not the the right or the main skill set you need. You need skills in dealing with people. And fundamental to that is recognizing that everybody has this sense of self-worth, of dignity, and that if a leader is going to violate that, if they're going to step all over it, uh, they're going to lose the engagement first, and ultimately uh, you'll get turnover. They'll lose employees. So in terms of what skills uh, you need to recruit and retain. I would say to all selection officials, regardless of whether they are, um, you know, a CEO or somebody in middle management, if you're if you're hiring someone for leadership, make sure that that is there or that it can be developed. Uh, Jim Senegal, uh, founder and or co-founder and many years CEO of Costco, said, "We try to create a jerk-free culture." Now, sometimes we make mistakes. Like yeah, he said it's very hard when people are lacking self-awareness or uh, lacking people skills to teach them. But when um, you occasionally make a mistake, you need to do everything you can to try to turn that around. You get the person coaching, you give them clear feedback that they need to grow in this area. And you give them a couple more tries. And if they start improving, you keep working with them. But if they can't get it, this is from Jim Senegal, you need to move that person out of a role where they're damaging people and into a position where they, they can do less harm. So I think if, if a guy at the top of you know, a multi-million dollar uh, and, and multi-national uh, company can recognize the importance of this, we need to learn from that. So uh, that brings me to uh, kind of an offshoot question here is you go and get these brilliant kids out of college and in their entire lives, they've seen nothing but success. They're the valedictorians. They won all the awards and everything. How do you instill humility in them? Because without that humility, they really can't rise. They, they're right. really cutting their own uh, legs off from under themselves. Exactly. And I think that has to begin with uh, some advice. And I'll use the word coaching loosely because I don't necessarily mean you hire an outside coach. The coaching can come from the manager. It can come from policies uh, around human resources about how we are going to interact. But I think in hiring uh, a person who has always been, say, the best and brightest, and they they may not have had to have humility in what they were doing as an individual contributor. Again, you need to help them understand you're now working with people, whether that's peers in an organization who, by the way, are also smart and accomplished. We selected all of you for that reason. So you might need to kind of dial back your ego a bit or particularly in terms of moving into management, helping that person realize that you need to build your people skills. And that's another set of smarts and it's just a new opportunity for you to grow. So I, I have seen uh, real change, real growth in uh, people who have been the best and brightest uh, intellectually as they realize that this is a new area for growth. They can be just as competitive and driven about building these skills. 
I also think failure is a great way to be, uh, make someone humble. And when I was 30, I worked for a board uh, of 15 guys who ran public companies. And my chairman set me up to run this uh, venture. And uh, I was failing at it. And he was so happy. And I said, why are you happy? He <laughs> said, because you've had nothing but success. Now you're going to learn something. Right. And, and I didn't think of myself as not being humble. And he didn't say I wasn't. But he said, I think you know, humility is important for any CEO to have. And failure is even more important. Until you've hit failure, you have no idea how to be successful. Good, good point. Yes. Yeah. So how personal uh, should managers get with employees to develop a rapport before they cross the line? Because I think a lot of managers are really worried about that today, especially in the meet, during the Me Too movement and some other things that have happened. So what should managers do about that? I think keeping at the forefront, again, that it's about supporting the other person's dignity and, and sense of self-worth. And keeping your antenna up for clues that maybe this is the boundary. You know, people are different. Every employee is different. I could give some general advice and say, you know, asking people light questions like, how was your weekend? Uh, are your kids going back to school in person this year? I mean, things like that are pretty innocent and I think are fairly safe ground and pay attention to the answers. And when you follow up in a week or two and the kids have started, how are they enjoying it? I mean, I think things like that uh, are social questions that show an interest, uh, but don't cross a line. If you start going down directions like, oh, do you have a boyfriend or a girlfriend? Or, you know, well, you know, does he come over to your house? I mean, you probably are crossing a line at that point. And unless the person is volunteering that information, uh, I wouldn't recommend you go there. And even if they do volunteer it, I think I would simply listen and nod and carry the conversation in some more neutral directions. Uh, some people don't have um, a comfort with questions like that, and they might be uh, quick to complain or to feel that you've crossed a line. Other people might be more open, but I don't see a need to um, get into that sort of personal discussion, say, about a person's love life or, you know, their personal physical being, I think you could certainly talk about um, more neutral topics. Now you're killing all the interesting drama that goes on in companies without knowing know. all that, right? <laughs> right. Uh, one of the questions from the audience is, to what degree is the current great resignation trend correlate with your research, if at all? Well, I haven't done uh, research. It's a great question. I haven't done research uh, on the current because, you know, the book uh, was was doing that digging before the pandemic. But I think it's very clearly related. We are seeing a lot of resignations because people's dignity is not being supported by the organization. And there's a couple of different ways it's playing out. In some cases, people weren't happy with the leadership they had uh, before the pandemic and after working on their own and finding out now, in many cases, uh, we can't find and find enough talent. So people feel they have opportunities, uh, particularly because they might be able to continue to work uh, broader geographic areas with remote work. So they're, the, the dignity they feel wanting to work for someone who gets them, who supports them, is playing out in a certain set of uh, resignations. 
we we find others that are particularly tied to this issue of I want to work from home part or full time, and it might tie to daycare issues, uh, no longer being comfortable with an hour, hour and a half commute each way. Uh, now that I've learned I can do my work from uh, the home, why do I want to get back into losing so many hours a week just uh, commuting? So employees are asking for flexibility, and that, again, is do you see me? And if the companies are not willing to offer reasonable flexibility, um, then they, they may risk uh, some of that high attrition that we're seeing, too. Um, I had uh, someone I talked with locally who worked for a well-known company and this was in about a month and a half ago, the company had not announced when its return to office would be. And this particular manager said, I'm hoping it's not going to be before September because, and this is here in Seattle, with our weather pattern, it was so nice last summer to work from home and be able to stop in the middle of the day and go out and walk the dog or just take a you know, 15 minute walk, get some exercise in the sun when, you know, so much of the rest of the year, it's not as nice. Uh, and if they ask us to come back uh, earlier in the summer, they're going to have a mass wave of resignations. So, uh, you know, I think there are just many ways in which companies need to uh, dial into the dignity of their workers and find out what it's going to take to support that. In that case, it was just a matter of timing. You know, could you leave them remote for a couple more months? And this was a company that uh, had a high face, uh, a high a culture that emphasized FaceTime in a big way. They wanted people there in the office being seen. And people were saying, you know, I don't know that we really need as much of that. It's funny because uh, leaders need to be able to explain to people why they want them in the office. So because one, it's a kind of a cost issue. They've already are you know, running for five, 10 years or more. Right. Second, a lot of leaders feel like some of the best new ideas come from people interacting over coffee or just dropping by people's right. offices and without that. But I think without explaining why they want them to come back and why that's important for the organization. And just because and just saying we want you back makes it feel like they're just trying to control you as opposed to given those options, right? Exactly. And I think it's important for leaders to ask how much of that assumption is real. If you have had employees doing the heavy lifting for you from home for a year, haven't you learned that they can actually do a lot from home? And so do you really need them back in the office five days a week to generate that creativity? And so some companies are taking policies that say, uh, we'll let employees uh, work from home up to two days a week. But yeah. we, want, we want people here on you know, Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday so that everybody's available for meetings and for interactions. Uh, other organizations are saying, we'll let everybody kind of submit their own plan. We have to approve the plan, uh, but we're willing to give lots of flexibility, whether it's, you know, four 10 hour days or you know two days in the office, the rest of it at home. Uh, so I think whatever approach you use, you need to dial that into also finding out what people feel they need and they want, and then trying to craft a plan around that that meets the needs of the managers, but also the employees. 
I think you answered the question from one of the listeners who said, what changes should one make as we become virtual leaders? And I think that's probably the that's answer it. that they were looking yeah. for, for sure. Um, although fear and intimidation are uh, as uncomfortable, there are countries that use it quite effectively. But you maintain this isn't a recipe for long-term success. Why are certain countries able to make this work? And in some cases, people stay and don't leave, even if they have the chance to do so. I think it's a question of culture. I mean, we had uh, a leadership style based in fear and intimidation here in the United States during the industrial era, and people would stay. And arguably, there were great results that came from it. Uh, what we have globally are vastly different cultures, and I don't want to label them as some being uh, better than others. I'll say they're simply different. And if you are raised in a culture and you're used to that style of leadership, then it doesn't feel unusual. And so it might be effective as you get uh, to other countries where the norms are different. And certainly in uh, the U.S., for example, the norms are very different. People uh, are accustomed to asking questions and challenging leaders, whether those are political leaders or business leaders, uh, teachers. So they've kind of grown up with that expectation that they should have input. They have a right to judge leaders. So if you're in a culture like that, a style that tries to retain control and command is much more vulnerable and much less effective. So I think you have to start with where is the base culture in understanding what will work and what won't. I, I think you're right about culture. And I think uh, look at uh, China and Singapore, which are very controlling countries. But for the most part, I think people are really happy because they've seen their standard of living rise so much that they're right. willing to make trade-offs. Right. I think there's trade-offs to everything. Uh, from your research, do women show more humility than men? Um. I would say uh, they probably have a bit of an edge. I don't think it's true that women are always more humble than men. Uh, I have met and spoken with a number of leaders, female leaders I would call very arrogant. Um, and I, I have worked with and talked with many male leaders who are very humble. Uh, you mentioned Alan Mulally among them. I've mentioned several in the book, Jim Senegal, Howard Bihar. Uh, so I don't think it's strictly a gender split. One of the things, though, while you raise that question that, that I have found in my research is that there is a narrower band of acceptability uh, in terms of uh, the path that women have to walk, minorities also. So if you could think of a big hallway, everybody gets to go down this hallway as a leader, uh, the hallway is narrower for women and minorities. So if you uh, stray a little farther in terms of um, meekness, it's quickly seen and you're considered too weak to lead because there already are some assumptions that maybe women aren't going to be strong enough to lead, just stereotypical biases. On the other hand, the, the zone of tolerance for what could be called arrogant is also narrower. Uh, and a, an example would be uh, Kamala Harris, our vice president, um, being challenged over the border issues when she was recently appointed to that. And some of the press saying, well, you know, you haven't even visited it yet. 
And her response was, well, I haven't been to Europe either. Uh, That did not play well in the media. It was viewed as a very arrogant response. And as I sat back, what I was thinking was, you know, that probably worked well when she was a prosecutor and you could have a zinger like that in the courtroom and it fit that role. But it will take her as a leader because it's seen as violating the dignity of, in this case, you know, um, the reporter. But it, it just... I mean, a more appropriate response, particularly for a woman, would have been, you know, I understand the concern. It's really important for me to get there. Schedule's packed. I've got my team working on it. We're gonna we're gonna make a make a trip down there as soon as possible. Somebody has a dog. <laughs> okay, I was gonna say I think I've lost you. <laughs> no, 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 no. I'm all good. One of the questions from the audience was. Uh, was a more personal style of leadership something uh, we see more in the past? And then we saw the change in the 1950s to 1990s of the authoritarian leadership style. Um, I think we had a more authoritarian leadership style in that era. I'm not sure there was a more personal style prior to that. I haven't looked that closely going back, but my Uh, My insight is that the early industrial era was not particularly um, personal. I mean, if I think of Henry Ford, uh, he was known for almost being uh, fairly brutal and for a fair amount of intimidation on the, the factory line. And, you know, Ford certainly was one of those early industrial companies. Uh, We had the growth of a union movement during the early industrial era because that organized labor was the only way really of negotiating with managers who tended to be uh, more authoritarian. So I I think the earlier era was also uh, not particularly personal, um, although I haven't anchored my research specific to that. I I also think in Henry Ford's time, you worked in um, town companies, company towns, I guess, company towns, Right. And you didn't have many options today. Uh, the, the best and brightest have all kinds of options Correct. all over the world. So they don't have to put up with anything and they can just walk out and they do. They just And they, they do. And they do. And, and there are skill sets that uh, companies simply can't find enough people to take those jobs. Yeah, for sure. Um, how do you blow your own horn and still be humble so you get noticed? Because I, I just read an article on this in the Harvard Business Review. And so, and they had a, a lot of research on this, but what, what's your take on this? I think it's important to make sure that the people uh, above you and to some extent around you recognize your accomplishments. And I think that there are subtle ways of weaving that into discussion. Um, you know, we're faced with doing this and You know, my sense is that when I did X last year, I learned that, you know, these are some of the steps we could take. So in saying when I did X, you're reminding people uh, that there was an accomplishment that you made. I think when you're when you're managing upward, uh, you certainly have opportunities near performance review to remind your supervisors what you've done. But I also think it could come through. Uh, as it's relevant to what you're doing now, to do those little reminders uh, much more frequently just in terms of email, uh, and it could be, or or sit down conversation. But again, I think it's 
um, calling out what you have done and reminding people. And the, the tone that I like to take uh, comes from realizing that the manager above you is, has a thousand things on his or her mind and your accomplishments might be one of them, but it's they're not gonna ever remember it all the way you do. So uh, instead of feeling slighted, simply taking the opportunity to bring in uh, those points over and over so that you're not overlooked is important. Uh, you write about ordinary power. Uh, what is that and why do you write it's limited? What, what is that? So I'm talking more about the, uh, the reliance on position, power, and title, uh, which is really about uh, I get to make decisions. I have certain authority. And that's true. I can hire people. I can evaluate performance, make, uh, you know, judgments about raises. I can terminate people if they're not doing well. So all of that power is kind of endowed in a position and in a set of human resource practices that most organizations follow or attempt to follow pretty well. And that works, but only to a point. There is an extraordinary power that a leader can earn, and it has to be earned. It doesn't come through the authority, and it's earned by the way you support others' dignity, where they feel so valued and they value you that they are willing to kind of go above and beyond the call of duty and give it everything they have. And you know that you are leveraging that extraordinary power by some of the things you start to see. When you see people, uh, and this is back in an office environment, but staying longer uh, than their normal hours because they wanna finish up a task. When you see them coming to you and saying, you know, I'm, I'm doing this, which is part of my job, but it occurs to me there's another opportunity here to engage the customer or start a new product or whatever. What do you think about that? Or could we set aside some time to talk about it? They're showing initiative. They're showing creativity. Or they, they come to you and say, um, you know, here's something that kind of blew up with a customer or with another department. And it was fairly urgent. Uh, but I want you to know how I handled it. And is there anything more you feel I need to do or something I should have done differently? What you're seeing is problem solving that didn't have to be done. So those kinds of signals start to show up when you're leveraging the, the extraordinary power that comes from supporting others' dignity, where they start going above and beyond doing things they didn't have to do. Uh, and you end up with a much more thriving organization and better results. Is there any correlation to how people are raised and what type of leaders they become? Because I'm wondering if there's a certain way to raise your children so they become quality leaders. Uh, good question. And the answer is largely yes. I don't know that I have a prescription for all parents because they're in widely different circumstances. But in chapter nine in the book, I look at this issue of can you develop humility? And it's not something you develop in a short one day course, I can tell you that. But I looked at the dozen leaders uh, I interviewed and I found some themes. Uh, one of the themes was uh, being raised in humble circumstances, leaders who themselves were minorities or women and had felt the humbling that society offered because of that status, 
or they were raised in uh, economically disadvantaged or weaker uh, situations so that they didn't develop arrogance because they remembered where they came from. Um, sometimes they learned it vicariously, like Brad Agle, whose father was one of the last polio victims and spent most of his uh, years in a wheelchair. And yet Brad said he never complained. He was always upbeat. And, you know, he teared up when he said it. He said that was the model I lived with every day, just someone working hard, being humble and finding ways to make his life work. So those kinds of experiences can help shape humility in us. If you're raised in a very privileged way or you are raising your children in a privileged context, I think there are things that parents can do. And some of my interviewees talked about what they were taught by their parents. Uh, you know, one of them said, uh, you are no better than anyone else and no one is better than you. So teaching a child to have that balanced uh, ego. Others talked about getting that message through their faith, being taught that other people are valuable. So I think wherever it comes from, the signal is to teach children that other people are really valuable, just as valuable, and that their self-worth is valuable. So if you teach them uh, how to talk with others, how to treat them, they will grow up into adults and into leaders who have that basic humility. I've seen uh, studies at Harvard, Wharton, and Stanford that every statistic shows a minimum of 30% increase in profits and business value when leadership is diversified. What kind of leader doesn't embrace or try to implement this? There still are leaders who uh, either don't believe it because of their own bias or are more focused on what they think is protecting uh, their own power and the way things have been done in the organization so that they, they simply don't make an active effort to go after uh, creating that diversity, which has, as you said, been shown so clearly to lead to better uh, financial results. How can a brand's reputation be affected by the leader's lack of humility? Oh, it can be affected in very, very negative ways. So some of the big PR disasters that uh, we see uh, can, can come about because leaders have arrogance or they're very defensive uh, or they, they simply don't um, own the problem and, and communicate to the public that, you know, we have an issue here. This is really important to us. We're going to do a serious investigation, get to the bottom of it, and we will get back to you around what we find and what corrective steps we're going to take. And that almost always is the correct approach. Um, and when you, when you don't do that, when you, when you get out uh, into the PR world and you start saying, we didn't do it uh, when you did, it almost always comes out that you did because there's enough investigative reporting out there that someone's gonna surface the wrongdoing. And at that point, you've lost your credibility. And if you continue to go down a path of denial, uh, then you've got problems. We've seen this, for example, with uh, Big Pharma around the opioid crisis. Uh, we've seen it around some diversity issues. You know, a good example would be the incident with Starbucks a couple years back 
where the um, manager in a Philadelphia store, your area, right, called the cops on two black men who were sitting around having coffee because it just seemed like, uh, let's profile this. And once it came out that they weren't doing anything wrong uh, and they they had been arrested, the CEO of that company uh, flew out to meet with those gentlemen and apologize. Importantly, did not blame the employee but did say this isn't consistent with our values and ended up shutting down the stores uh, to provide this sort of implicit bias training for the whole company. So it was a very big statement. I mean, shutting down stores and providing that training was a huge revenue hit for that day, right? But it was a very big statement that we mean this. Now, some cynics would say, well, it was just a business decision because they have a diverse customer base But the point is they showed to that diverse customer base that their dignity mattered. And as a result of that, that whole PR thing kind of calmed down in a fairly short period of time. Whereas with the opioid situation, it didn't. And you've got huge, huge, uh, you know, problems that have come out of that and lawsuits and uh, judgments. Well, look at Governor Cuomo in New York. I was in uh, flying recently. And I was in the airport bookstore and I'm thinking, hey, you guys are going to be using that for kindling wood, uh, his books, um, because his brand went right down the tubes for his bad behavior. Very quickly. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so uh, at the we're at the end here and we have one more question that we can sneak in. At the end of the day, after discussing this, aren't people either wired for humility or not? I mean, don't you think people are wired that way? I think that for the most part, people evolve uh, partly as they're raised and based on their experiences, and some have humility and some don't. As an educator, I have found that this can be taught, uh, and I've spent a lot of my work in developing leaders uh, showing that it can be taught. I've done coaching and shown that it can be learned. So Maybe we're wired, but this is also being presented as a set of skills, as a set of behaviors, and people can learn that. So maybe you aren't inherently that way, but if you understand its importance, you can adopt those behaviors. It's not that hard. Marilyn, thank you so much for taking the time. Great book. Leaders should definitely be reading. But I also think uh, that if you think your kids have potential to start their own venture or they're going to rise up in a company. I think it's a good book for them to go and read early on so they know how to handle this and embrace it. Well, everybody, thank you so much. Have a great weekend. We'll look forward to seeing you all next week. Take care. Thank you, Mark. Thank you. Thank you for listening to another episode of The Best Business Minds. Tune in every Friday at 12 p.m. Eastern time for our live recordings. Go to www.thebestbusinessminds.com for more information and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter to be kept up to date with our upcoming guests and other bonus material. See you next time.